Welcome to Psalm Springs, a podcast dedicated to an open and hopefully inspirational discussion of the biblical book of Psalms. We come to you each week with different aspects and different views of the ancient text and how those texts might inform our lives today. Welcome again to Psalm Springs here in the desert of California. Uh, We're going into our third month of lockdown. Uh, Andrew and I, Father Andrew Green and I, haven't seen each other in person for months now, but we do see each other uh, every week on screen, and we have decided to uh, record this particular conversation about Psalm 119. But first, uh, Father Andrew, how are you and Deacon Susan doing? I think, I think we're doing pretty well. Susan's recovered from her brain surgery. Very few people can enter a lockdown with uh, eight hours of brain surgery, and she's done really well with it. And so all of that's uh, quite a blessing. So we're very grateful. And so with that in mind, it would be hard to be complaining about much of anything else. Shavach Lael. I too am looking forward to uh, the return of my wife, Sasha, who's been in Israel for all this time. We had a a birth of another grandson, Hillel, and she'll be coming back uh, to a 14-day quarantine before she can go back to work as an RN. So I'm still trying to figure out how the two of us will be living under the same roof, but not necessarily really be living together. Interesting times, my friend, interesting times. So uh, we, uh, we're going to take a look at uh, Psalm 119 today. Uh, not all of it, of course, it being the longest of the Psalms. Uh, but Andrew, why, why, why did you pick this Psalm for us to talk about? Well, I picked the Psalm because I think that it's the Psalm that tends to be, um, we, we, we take it for granted a lot. And as a result, uh, when I was reading it uh, on a Wednesday morning, uh, reading parts of it on a Wednesday morning, I thought about it and I thought, you know, we really ought to be uh, using this psalm. And I find that it's a, a psalm that shows up quite a bit in our Sunday liturgies, a couple times a year, different parts of it, uh, each of three years. So it shows up maybe six, seven times, and, which is uh, a pretty good clip for, for psalms. So that, those are the, that's the reasons that I decided it would be great to look at it. Right, but you, is there a time when the entire psalm is recited? Um, when I was looking this up, I found that Greek Orthodox monks once a year will recite the whole psalm um, in one night, like at midnight. And I have a feeling that there's probably a very specific theological reason for it, but it wouldn't surprise me if one monk just dared another and it became a thing. (laughs) And so we're talking about 176 verses, correct? Correct. Yeah, and it's it's built as an acrostic poem, eight lines of each letter of the Aleph Bet, the Hebrew alphabet, starting with Aleph all the way to Toth. In the Jewish liturgical tradition, we've got something interesting. While many verses are quoted in different parts of the liturgy, weekdays, Sabbath, uh, special holiday liturgy, um, the only time this is used extensively uh, is, that is, unless somebody is 
taken upon themselves to read the Psalms much in the monastic tradition, uh, although done by lay people in, in, in observant traditional circles of Judaism. But the time where this, is, this Psalm is used the most that I know from Israel in particular is around memorializing someone who is uh, no longer with us, uh, someone who is dead, uh, not at the funeral per se, but at many of the ceremonies that are connected to the graveside. For instance, the stone setting, which in the diaspora is done sometime around a year after the death. In Israel, the custom is to do it 30 days at the end of the 30-day period. And, um, and this psalm is used, or an annual um, pilgrimage to a gravesite, uh, any kind of memorial service. And how is it used? It, each letter of the person's Hebrew name is spelled out with that eight-verse strophe of that letter of the alphabet. So if somebody's name is Adam, like Adam in English, Adam, Aleph, Dalid, Mem, so the first four, the, the first eight verses are the first eight verses of the psalm, of the Psalm 119, are said, and then they skip to that strophe that is for the letter of Dalid, and then to Mem. And so you're very lucky if you've got a short name. Uh, if you have a long name or if you have two names and sometimes three names, uh, the people will take the time to go through all of this uh, recitation of the psalm, even if it's repeating, um, repeating some of the lines more than once, maybe even twice. Uh, and so it can be a little bit cumbersome. And I'm guessing you too, Andrew, have found that this psalm is not – it's it's a little bit cumbersome, right, to to read read so much it's, at one time. I mean, it's cumbersome to read in a public setting at one time, but I've been reading, and a variety of folks say that um, if one wants to get a sense of uh, the extent of wisdom, of the wisdom perce perception of Torah, that reading it at once kind of gives you a sense of kind of a whole experience rather than just kind of little nibbles mm. here or there. And I seem that's like a reasonable yeah. thing to me. So well, you would agree that there's no great drama in this psalm. Oh, no. But, but it is a psalm, a wisdom psalm, as you said. This is a part of the genre of wisdom psalms. I mean, I think you've said it when we've talked previously that in this psalm, it's kind of like most everything that's going to happen in the psalm happens in the first eight verses. And then it's just repeated, what, 22 times or more in different ways. And there is certainly literarily something to be gained by finding all the different ways to come at uh, law and decree and commandment and teaching and statute, um, and derive some moral or some um, wisdom kind of insight from each of those, and and has and to repeat any number of times the ways in which uh, one would like God to guide us on a pathway that leads consistently to this uh, approach to wholeness. Mm. Okay. So you mentioned a number of times the word Torah. Let's hold off on that. And if you would honor us by reading the first eight verses and tell us what translation you're reading from. 
I'll be reading from the Book of Common Prayer translation that's by the Episcopal Church. It's written for our prayer book, the Book of Common Prayer. And while it is a fairly accurate translation, uh, when push comes to shove, the metrical and the poetic um, conditions are more important than exactly the right ordering or right words. So here's the first eight verses. Happy are they whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Happy are they who observe his decrees and seek him out with all their hearts, who never do any wrong, but always walk in his ways. You laid down your commandments that we should fully keep them. Oh, that my ways were made so direct that I might keep your statutes. Then I should not be put to shame when I regard all your commandments. I will thank you with an unfeigned heart when I have learned your righteous judgments. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. Now, if this is the first time that you, any of our listeners, are hearing seeing this psalm, uh, it does sound repetitive, doesn't it? The same words, uh, precepts, oh, yeah. and rules. And even if it's not the same word, some of the same words are mentioned twice. Uh, even if it's not the same words, the words are all synonymous. They're all from the same pool of meaning. And, and I would say that um, the New Jewish Publication Society and other translations from the Jewish tradition would more or less agree with everything that you've read. There would be one difference, though, and I, it seems like a slight difference, but I think there's something more to it, and that would be in the first, the first line. The first line, happy are those in the New Jewish Publication Society, happy are those whose way is blameless, who follow the teaching of the Torah as opposed to the law. And, um, and while, yes, they are they're interchangeable, uh, teaching is more accurate from a semantic point of view, from a linguistic point of view, to the word Torah, because that's what it translates in that particular verse, Torah. Uh, before I go into the, to the, to the, uh, the etymology, uh, how, how do you, as a Christian, how have you in your life understood the word Torah when you've heard it used? Well, when I grew up with law, and I, the word law, and we read um, for, the, for the law, uh, the Jewish law that we read, we read every year numerous times during Lent the Ten Commandments according to the Christian counting of those commandments. And so it was late in my life when I realized that there was a lot more to the Torah than just those Ten Commandments. And when one only has those ten, you tend to have a different view of what law or Torah means instead of being something that's about a way of life. It's about kind of a list of um, things you don't really want to do. And, and, and it develops a whole approach that's kind of an adversarial approach as opposed to one that is about um, continuously improving and being on a pathway where it's not an either or, it's a how do I get better and better 
at following this path pathway more closely. Mm. And I think each of those is a very distinctive way of looking at it. And it's, it's worked its way out in Christianity in general, uh, where uh, a rule-oriented Christianity is one in which there's very little black, uh, gray. Everything is black or white. And usually that means at the level of the layperson, they assume everything is black and white. At the level of the um, scholar, at the level of the highest of church leaders, they have been with it enough that they know that even the things that we think of as totally black and white are really not that way. Hmm. But our popular faith tends to see things a little bit more black and white when we have a limited view of what Torah means. Right. So you started for, by sharing, fascinating, you started by sharing with us that the symbol of the Ten Commandments, uh, the Ten Commandments symbolize for many Christian folk the Torah as well, the entire Torah, right? And, and, and that plays itself out in, at least in the United States, in culture and town squares and courthouses and things that all those kinds of debates that we've witnessed over the last few decades, whether something should be there or there should be a separation of church and state. But, you know, if you ask most Jews who are not from a in, uh, from an academic Jewish background or not from a yeshiva that is an orthodox education, they too might say Torah, they immediately think of the symbol that is the Torah scroll, which they see in the synagogue. Uh, and even, even many would say the Ten Commandments as a symbol. I'm not sure they know all the Ten Commandments to recite them, but the Ten Commandments have been a symbol in Jewish folk art, at least from the limited amount of research that I've done with, a, with my friend's Judaica collection, at least from the 17th century, maybe even earlier, you have these the two tablets and all sorts of uh, title pages of books on, on Torah covers, on uh, um, uh, curtains for, for Torah arcs, and all sorts of places. And so the symbol kind of stops the the, limits the meaning, but when we go back etymologically to the word itself, Torah comes from the verb yara, yud resh he, which means to shoot, which means to aim an arrow. And so um, instruction, that is, the teacher is aiming at the student, the message, the, the knowledge, the wisdom, which he or she wants to impart to, to the student, uh, it, it, that, that essentially would be the the, the bare bones meaning of Torah. And of course we get stuck on all the other sides. As far as black and white is concerned, um, that's, that's a really interesting question when it comes to Jewish literature, because although the Torah itself seems like it's black and white, when you look inside and compare the same law in Leviticus to the same law in Deuteronomy, we find different answers. Now is not the time to expound upon that, but uh, two different, uh, and if we look at the narrative, two different creation stories and three different stories about the forefathers who said to their wives, uh, say that you're my sister, so on and so forth. Uh, and that tradition of plurality or pluralism certainly continues in what we call the oral Torah. The written Torah is the five books of Moses. In some cases, people would refer to the written Torah as all of Hebrew scripture. The oral Torah are all the uh, writings of the rabbis that were collected from the second century CE onward. And, um, and that is filled with anything but black and white. 
It's a constant right. debate, constant conversation. Right. So I, I guess we, we could certainly agree on this, that if, if people are, are able to open themselves to the poetry and hear the different words um, and, and perhaps be open to the fact that it's not just for it to be nice. It's not just art, art, or the artistry of the poet to use different words, but in using different words, there's a message of plurality as well. What do you mean by Torah, right? And of course, each of these lines uh, in, in the Hebrew text, while your translation repeats some of the same words in English, each of the lines in the Hebrew text uh, are different, except for one word is repeated twice, chok. But you've got derech, way, edotav, decrees, testimonies, pikudim, our precepts, uh, mitzvot, commandments, and uh, and mishpatei just rules. Okay, so that's as far as Torah is concerned. But then there's this other word that we, I think, we've spoken about beforehand, and that's the first word, ashrei, ashrei, happy. Um, what 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 are your thoughts on on that, and 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 what it means to interfaith dialogue, and what it means in general to wisdom literature? Well, I mean. The easy, the way that I grew up was hearing it through the Beatitudes. Um, the first the first few verses, first 20 verses of Matthew's gospel, of, of Matthew's fifth chapter. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so using that word blessed elevates the concept. And it's the same word, ashre, but other translations translated as happy. Some translated as fortunate. So when we get this psalm, which which translates it, I'm looking up my, we get this, it translates it as happy. Well, all of a sudden, it's not as churchy. Blessed is kind of churchy language, blessed. Happy is more of an everybody language. And if one were to say um, lucky, which would also be an accurate translation of the Greek makarios, um, it takes on a whole different uh, perspective. But when we, when we dig down, what does happiness refer to? What does blessedness? What does the luckiness? It's the person who can be um, kind of fully in balance, fully, um, what's, the, what's the word we were talking about before? C- content. Content. Mm-hmm. And being content um, is something that doesn't necessarily fit real well with a lot of Christian theology. Because in Christian theology, uh, we're all trying to be witnesses or in the Greek martyrs. And contentedness doesn't necessarily fit in that, in that way of thinking. So the idea of learning that my spiritual growth is about um, developing a sense of spiritually being content or at rest or complete with God um, and with my neighbors, you know, that's a very different way of, of thinking about it. And so I think it's not, the entry-level um, version of this. Yeah. Well, specifically, 
in the time we're living in now and in the place that you, are, you and I live in, you in Palm Desert, me in Palm Springs, and the controversy going on uh, with regard to Riverside counties, perhaps lifting restrictions before some people are ready, after many people thought it should happen, and a lot of anger. We see a tremendous amount of anger around this. Um, I think we could all use an exercise in reminding ourselves to be content uh, with rules, to be content with, um, with respect for others. And it's not just our relationship with God, as you pointed out, it's our relationship with others. And, mm -hmm. and the, true, the true trust of wisdom is, is not our relationship with God. It is our relationship with, with the rest of God's creation. Uh, I mean, I guess what I'd like to, I would love it if those of us that are in such a place where we are relatively privileged to be able to argue about our contentedness, uh, we're able to put aside some of our, uh, our anxiety about it in favor of caring for the contentedness of people who have much less mm -hmm. and people who have much less privilege and who are constantly on the opposite side of all of the blessedness that comes from life and that we enjoy on a regular basis. Um, so perhaps that sense of contentedness is one that should constantly leaving us to aspire to contentedness for all. Amen, amen. And may this, uh, may this psalm, or at least these eight lines of this psalm, be the beginning for each of us uh, in trying to find various spiritual practices that will help us not only just get through these tough times, but take advantage of these difficult times to grow and to, uh, and, and to deepen our understanding of who we are and the lives that we live and the paths that we're on. Uh, Father Andrew, as usual, it's been lovely to study with you and to be with you. And I look forward to seeing you again next week. Thank you. Take care, David. Bye-bye. Psalm Springs is a production of Or Hamid Bar, Light of the Desert, an organization dedicated to intellectual, spiritual, and social engagement with the Jewish tradition. We're based in Palm Springs, California, and we'd like to give thanks to Madalena Garza for editing and everything else tech-like in this production. Please check us out at www.orhamidbar.org for more information. And if you'd like to sponsor a Psalm Springs episode, you can do so by going to our website. If you like what you've heard, please express it on iTunes, Apple, or Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.